Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 21st, 2017. The Paul Ryan has died and gone to heaven edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura here on the winter solstice. I'm a little sick, so please excuse any frogginess or hoarseness in my voice. John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation is right here, à mon droit, <laughs> to my right. How are you, Jean? And yet, verily, I am gauche. Uh, you are gauche. <laughs> You're the least gauche among us three. That's for sure. In so many ways. <laughs> Emily Bazelon. I'm obviously the gauchest of the three of us. Emily Bazelon. Hello. Hello, hello. That's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine in New Haven. Indeed. On this week's Gab Fest, Congress and the president get their win. A Republican tax bill has become law. Republicans are gleeful. Should they be gleeful? Then strange goings on at the EPA, the IRS, the CDC. What are we learning about how the Trump administration governs and what, what will the long-term impact of its governing style be on government? Then Linda Greenhouse, legend of legal journalism, will join us to talk about the state of journalism, the law, and the courts. And she and Emily will say lots of things like tort and and habeas corpus and ipso facto to each other. Really? Wow. What are the other legal? What are the other legal terms? The Latin. The the Latin one. Motion in limine was the one that got um, one of the Trump nominees in trouble. Oh, that's right. Res judicata. There's going to res judicata all over the place. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And special treat for you all coming next week. Next week is not a regular show. It's our annual conundrum show. We taped that already in Boston with They Might Be Giants. It was really fun, a really fun evening. I think it's going to be full of treats. So uh, when you tune into your feed next week, you'll get the conundrum show 
and uh, tell us what you think of it. Please respond. Send us some more conundrums. The conundrum shows are now so popular that the Hang Up and Listen is doing a conundrum show. Oh, they are, huh? Of sports conundrums. Oh. That's good. Sports conundrums could be good, actually. I like that idea. It's a great idea. I'm going to special guest on it today, later. Really? Yeah, it was log, that was log rolling. That was surreptitious log rolling. I didn't mean it as log rolling. Yeah. I, just, I just want to identify that for our listeners who may have missed that. You know I'm not ashamed to log roll, but that was not actually my usual log roll. It was roll. an accidental log roll. Yeah. So uh, here's the question. Is an accidental log roll any less uh, than a planned one? Huh. For the next conundrum Maybe. show. For the next conundrum show. Might be a little more natural, it's actually, right? Well, no, it like might be just... worse because it shows that it, you're that even even in a state of nature, you can't stop self-serving. <laughs> Perfect. Well, there's an entire religion <laughs> founded around that idea, so it's fine. Republicans finally scored a major victory a year into the Trump presidency with the passage of a huge tax cut bill this week. The new law will provide short-term tax cuts for most Americans, thanks to a higher standard deduction. Some lower rates and increased uh, child tax credit. It will massively cut corporate income tax rates from 35 down to 21 percent. It will give very favorable tax treatment to pass-through businesses and those who run pass-through businesses, while squeezing some tax deductions, particularly favored by Americans in blue states around state and local taxes, in particular. The bill will overwhelmingly benefit the very rich, especially over the long term. According to one study I saw now, 83% of the benefits of this bill will will accrete to the top 1% of Americans because they own the shares in the companies and the huge estates that will be less estate taxed and the pass-through businesses that will be at a lower tax rate. The Republican senators who had threatened to vote against the bill all ultimately caved and supported it even though none of them really ended up getting exactly the assurances that they wanted to get or the votes that they demanded to get. So, Emily, is this law, this bill, going to help America? Hmm? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's this funny, um, like, twist is the wrong word, this funny uh, dance going on where, on the one hand, Republicans did exactly as you said. They sort of waited the costs of the bill till later on, and certain provisions are going to expire. And so there's this, like, way in which in the short term, people, regular, most regular people, not everybody, but most regular people are going to see some tax benefit. But then in the longer term, they're gonna, they could get smacked and the benefit's tilt incredibly toward the wealthy, as you said. But then there's this idea of like, well, wait, those things aren't really going to come to pass anyway, because the provisions that are set to expire will, in fact, continue. Um, and but So that, first of all, there's like a sort of having your cake and eating it too about that baked in, because the reason the um, provisions are set to expire is to make the bill come in under this $1.5 trillion ceiling that, as far as I can understand, the Republicans just like set on themselves, right? I mean, they could have changed the rules for reconciliation and set a higher threshold, but that was the limit they set. So. I've been marveling at that. And then the other question is whether if these bill if if these later provisions really do sock the middle class, whether they'll be repealed and they'll never 
come into effect. And so we're worrying about something, about a train that is certainly coming and is on the tracks, but which we have the power to stop. Um, And if it proves as unpopular as it is right now, it would seem like there would be energy to to change things down the line. I I just want to pause, though. You didn't begin to answer the question. The the issue with (laughs) a tax cut is... A tax cut is not uh, – you can you could ca- cut everyone's taxes down to zero. As long as the United States can borrow in the market, you could cut everyone's taxes down to zero right now, and the U.S. could simply borrow. That's what we do for the, the – right now, our revenues do not match our expenses, and so we borrow the difference, which is anywhere from, you know, several hundred billion to, you know, sometimes almost as much as a trillion dollars a year. That's That's the annual deficit. So the U.S., there's no reason why anyone should pay any taxes if the U.S. could borrow, because you could just say, oh, we're just going to borrow, we're just going to add to the deficit. So there's a cost. But so when you lower people's taxes, even if people benefit in the short term, even if people have more money to spend, mm-hmm. you're still p- saying later on down the road, we've just borrowed to make up for these, right. this, so this lack of revenue. Not- and that borrowing will 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 weaken the economy right. or will make it harder for the government to do the things it needs to do later. So, yeah. so is it worth it given those constraints? Well, that's not that that's one of the questions that's teed up, which is um, is the growth effect of a of a larger debt going to which is the negative growth effect of a, of a larger debt going to swamp the whole reason they created the additional debt in the first place, which was to grow the economy. So it's there's a way in which the, the one of the many gambles in this legislation is that the the negative effects of increasing the deficit and debt aren't going to appear. The thing is that the people who passed the bill have been the ones most strongly arguing for the proposition that the negative effects of the deficit um, are substantial. The second thing is that the just on staying on the debt question is that it's going to put more pressure on spending reductions um, – both in the discretionary budget where there is no money and in the uh, other portion of the budget with Social Security and Medicare where the spending cuts that would be necessary are hard, um, will affect people in a way that they will not like, and that will lead to bad outcomes because politicians won't do the hard thing. They'll do the easier thing, which will lead to bad policy. So this puts puts more pressure on an existing problem uh, in terms of dealing with Social Security and Medicare, or or really Medicare, but then there's the other question about the tax bill, which is: Does it order the priorities of tax uh, cutting in a way that is consistent with the economic needs of the moment? A and then B, that's consistent with the political promises of the president, both in the campaign and the president and Republicans in the period in the last year, in the period since he was elected. The priorities are the middle class. You know, the middle class does get a tax cut. I think that the Latest analysis shows that about 9% uh, won't, but so that means the vast majority will. They do expire. Uh, as Emily mentioned, everybody believes that that, that they won't be allowed to expire, that the future politicians will keep those tax cuts in place, which may be true, but that means then the deficit uh, problem is even worse than we know. The question is whether, d- despite the fact that the middle class gets a tax cut, is that the right way you want to order your economic priorities in a time when there's been substantial economic inequality uh, that needs to be remedied? And are and, and will these policies help that problem 
many people say no. Um, the second thing is, is it consistent with the promises the president has made? When you talk about this as a middle class tax cut, you can't really do that when the bulk of it is geared towards corporations. Now, the rebuttal is, wait a minute, those corporations will plow the money back into wages or plants and equipment, and that'll lead to more jobs. Perhaps. There's obviously a great deal of economic debate about that. When the Bush administration um, uh, in 2004 uh, passed legislation to lower taxes to bring in money from overseas, it didn't lead to a a great growing of jobs. There have been the CEO surveys who show that they're not going to go out and hire lots and lots of people. And even the head of the Council of Economic Advisors for the president says that it'll take three to five years to see any of these wage or job benefits hit the middle class, and that that's a, the best estimate that it might take 10 years. This is all, it's a huge bet, a massive bet on things turning out a certain way. Um, and, and if that bet goes wrong, things are going to be a lot worse. Emily, polling suggests that Americans are very negative about this tax cut. It's a minus 19 sort of favorable to unfavorable that I saw, which is much worse even than Obamacare was. And it's much worse than any tax cut historically. Do you think that reflects simply the historic unpopularity of the president and he's being associated with this? Do you think it reflects a very successful Democratic campaign to paint the paint the uh, bill as a uh, sop to the rich? Or do you think that reflects just a wise insight on the part of the American people who recognize that it's a bill that doesn't particularly affect most of them and will help rich people instead of them. I mean, it does seem like with the polling for this bill and also for the efforts to repeal Obamacare, that you have a sense of people smelling a rat, that there's a deep um, set of dishonesties at the center of the sales pitch for the bill, which John just laid out very cogently. And you can see that it's a giveaway to the rich um, at a moment when rich people are already doing very well. And it doesn't seem as if most of us really stand to gain and and to watch the country kind of divide even more along um, economic lines. I think more and more people just feel like, what? why would that be popular? And then the fact that you have a president behind it who has these deep unpopularity ratings means that he's not going to be able to carry it along, that the sort of trust in leadership is low. Uh, So I think people are basically seeing through it. I mean, you could say that all of your possible explanations are true. It's hard to know why there's skepticism, but it runs deep. And we should also say, you know, this bill is going to likely destabilize um, the healthcare exchanges by repealing the individual mandate. So it also has in it some of the problems that the Obamacare repeal had. Right. That's a great, the smell of rat is a great phrase. John, do you, do you, do you think that this is going to unspool the way the Obamacare opposition unspooled? I felt like with Obamacare, there were all kinds of very specific terrors back in 2010 that conservatives and Republicans could point to about healthcare, death panels, you know, don't get to keep your own doctor. Yeah. And this seems to be more generic. I'm not sure it's going to hold the imagination the way that Obamacare did. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, first, we should note that the polling for this legislation consistently has had lower approvals than the Affordable Care Act did when it passed. And when it passed, Republicans made a strong case that when you pass anything through a single party line vote that is that unpopular, it is a deep 
arrogant and offensive thing to do the, to the American public. So judging by the standards that we use by the Affordable Care Act, this, by their own estimation then, would be a deep, deeply arrogant and offensive thing to do. So just to keep that in mind is important because the level of offense is then gets to your question. And with the case of Obamacare, I think you, you had a couple of things. One, for, the, for conservatives, it was culturally offensive to listen to uh, liberals tell them that they had the, like, smarty pants way of reorganizing the healthcare uh, system. And their smarty pants way was going to achieve their objectives, and, at the, and then it was going to screw up everybody else's healthcare. And so that was one thing that fueled the opposition. The second thing was people had so many complaints about the, the healthcare system as it existed, they started to graft existing complaints about the system onto Obamacare, even though Obamacare had nothing to do with those complaints. In this case, you have um, the railroading, as liberals will see it, of this tax plan through. It connects to the larger railroading they feel uh, that's going on in all of, of public life coming from the Republicans and the Trump administration. So I think in that sense, it will... It'll attach to an existing passion that we've seen in Alabama and Virginia. The question, though, is um, when you see that $2,000 in your paycheck over the course of a year for the average family, um, I understand there are flaws to using an average number and not doing it by quintile, but let's move past that. Um, are you going to are you going to say, hey, that's that's been worth it, uh, and I'm going to vote for the Republican because they gave this to me in my paycheck, um, and I think that we just don't know. I've never noticed a tax cut except when my payroll taxes were cut. That was the only one I ever noticed when there was a temporary dip in FICA. Um, Emily, what do you think the attack ads are going to look like? The attack ads are going to say this is a big giveaway to the rich and put up tape of the president promising to run as a populist and um, have the middle class, you know, in his heart. And then there'll be big dollar signs about where the money actually went. The fact that a huge number of Republican legislators are going to get significant benefits from the bill and that the president is almost yeah. certainly getting enormous benefits from the bill and will not be honest about it and, and is, has been deceptive and, and squirrely about it for two years, that ought to uh, make people worried. And I hope, I hope that that um, skepticism continues on the part of Democrats. Here's the biggest puzzling head scratcher for me. The Business Roundtable, an organization that exists to help corporations, said we'd like to see the corporate rate at 25%. Um, the president insisted on 20%. Think of what you could have used the difference between 20 and 25% to get to just load that all in the middle class tax cut. So you're giving the corporations essentially what they want. You, if you believe in the beneficial effects of lowering the rates um, and, and how they will accrue to the economy, um, clearly the business roundtable thinks that lowering it to 25 will, will get you all the growth effects you want. And you would be... You'd be on much firmer ground when you say this is a middle class tax cut because a lot of the direct money that goes in, they would have actually gotten a bigger tax cut. And then that would have allowed the president to actually keep faith with the promises he made during the campaign. I mean, it is extraordinary that a president who campaigned against Wall Street is heralding the growth of 401ks as the sign of how well his administration is doing. Um, and then I guess I would just 
say, uh, if you gave people relief uh, in other taxes that they paid, payroll tax, that would be broadly uh, across the middle class. Distributed. Thank you. So, and like you said, we would feel it. I mean, I think there's something, David, absolutely true about how you notice when your actual paycheck payroll tax goes down. That's the one you look at. That's when you see them take a bite. I want to close with two quick things. One, both maybe, John, you you look at. Paul Ryan has got the bill he's been hoping to pass. It actually isn't the bill he probably was hoping to pass. It isn't tax reform. And it doesn't do a lot of things that he has stated that he wants to do, but it is a big tax cut. And now Paul Ryan can die happy. There has been speculation in the past couple of weeks that he's going to leave Congress. Do you think now that this bill has done, he feels, oh, I can leave and he will get out? I don't know. I don't. I, I People who know him uh, that I talk to say that's crazy. He's not going anywhere. This happens in the context of what he's been saying ever since President Trump was elected, which is often when one of the many outrages uh, have been brought to him that even Republicans are speaking out about the president. The speaker has basically said, look, I'm focused on getting our work done. So now he's gotten his work done. Does that make it easier to retire? I don't know. I don't if he, even if it's not in his mind now, if he comes to a place where he thinks, gosh, I don't know, there's this exit ramp, whatever that exit ramp may be. They allow him to be the hunting warden up in, in the mountains somewhere, and that fi- he finds that attractive. The fact that he can say, I notched this big win, just from human nature, I'm riffing now. This I don't know this about Ryan in particular, but it just isn't a matter of human nature. Having notched a big win in that job, I could imagine would allow you to feel more like my work is done here. Now, it could also make you think, I, I, you know, I've, I can do, there's so much more I can do. Although given the partisanship, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure next year is going to be a huge uh, legislative achievement year. All right, John, last piece before we move on. There is an end of the year deadline looming on the budget and on appropriations. Where are we on the government shutdown on DACA, on CHIP, on CSRs? on warrantless surveillance. There are a whole lot of things which Congress said they were going to deal with. Democrats put a pin down and said, we're going to, we're not going to move forward at all unless we get a deal on DACA. Susan Collins has indicated she wouldn't want to move unless there was a deal to stabilize insurance markets with CSRs. Uh, The children's health insurance program is unfunded, which is an outrage. It's an outrage, an outrage what's going to happen. But they also don't want to shut down the government. Right. I don't think I don't think the government's going to shut down before Christmas. I think they're going to they're going to get there's a, at least as of Thursday morning there's an idea of putting in some money for chip for a temporary period. FISA court reauthorization will take place I think for a limited period. Nothing will be done on DACA. Alexander Murray the um, uh, healthcare bill that was supposed to fix the last set of issues with Affordable Care Act, not the new ones created by removing the the individual mandate, was supposed to be attached to the Senate bill, and I don't know where that stands at the moment. Can I say one thing about CHIP and DACA, which is that the idea that you send people, that Congress merrily goes home for the holidays, drinks the Republicans, you know, drink champagne over their tax bill, and you leave all these families potentially in the lurch with all this anxiety about whether their kids' health insurance is going to continue. It's I know kids on that health care program, and I, 
it's going to really affect people's state of mind over Christmas. It just makes me really upset, that part of it. Yeah. All right. So Slate Plus members, you get a special bonus segment with each episode. And today's special bonus segment is with Linda Greenhouse, who's coming on to talk about her book. But in Slate Plus, we're going to have a conversation with her about her favorite moment in the Supreme Court and uh, how it has lingered and what she learned from it. It's a wonderful, very detailed story about, uh, about a memorable moment at the court. If you want to become a Slate Plus member and get those bonus segments with your membership, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. After a year of the Trump presidency, we are seeing a significant impact on government in some agencies and less in others. I feel like there are three categories of government agencies. There, uh, there are some that continue to function more or less as they have functioned before, there's not been a lot of news out of them, and we suspect probably they're not that radically different. I, sus- I think the n- number one example of that is the Department of Defense run by James Mattis, who is you know highly respected and appears to have brought his intelligence and rigor to that department, and that appears to be running as it's always been running. I think something similar in Veterans Affairs appears to be like that, and I'm sure there are others that we just don't hear a lot about in the news. Then there are the departments and agencies where the leader seems to be feckless or ineffective or the the mission has been undermined in such a way or changed in such a way that that there's a loss of talent, there's a loss of morale, there's a loss of activity. Rex Tillerson at the State Department, there appears to be a huge bleed off of talent as there's been disillusionment with how he's been acting. He's been rated a very poor manager. There's something similar going on, at least at the IRS, within the Treasury Department. HUD and Department of Energy appear to have also sunk into a kind of lassitude with their not particularly inspiring leaders. And then you have a couple of agencies that have wonderfully active and aggressive leaders who are really working to make changes and who are accomplishing a whole lot and liberals are really unhappy about. At the top of the list, of course, is Scott Pruitt at the EPA, who has done remarkable things with that agency. He is a, he, you can say a lot about the Trump administration, but you cannot deny that Scott Pruitt is getting things done at the EPA. So Emily, is Scott Pruitt a good public servant? He is pursuing contrary policies, but is he a good public servant for at least actively and aggressively pursuing those policies with enthusiasm? Well, I mean, if you think of federal agencies as reflecting the will of the voters in the sense that the president um, appoints the agency heads and they do have discretion about how they make rules, then you see Scott Pruitt as carrying out the agenda of the Trump administration. And the more forcefully you carry it out, arguably, the more you're doing what you were put in office to do. I think there are a couple of questions to raise about the EPA and Pruitt. I mean, 
Well, maybe more than a couple. So one thing is the influence of industry directly into the like lifeblood of the EPA. And Eric Lipton in the New York Times has been really effective in showing how some of the people who are making these decisions are coming right from industry. And so if you worry about the revolving door of someone working for a particular company and then writing a rule that that company stands to benefit from, a rule that would seem to harm the environment and thus hurt the people who are trying to drink the water, breathe the air, you might raise questions about that. So that's one set of issues that have arisen. And also the kind of overturning of rules that many years of work went into by career scientists at the EPA. So ProPublica has this amazing story about the rule governing what's called Effluence. effluence, effluence, exactly. Although I think bad stuff. I think you're right. Water. It's it's actually effluent, not effluence, right? I'm effluent. sorry. Well, it seems like I was, the wrong part of speech, though, right? That's I, why I, you said effluence. That's my yeah. I apologize. That was just me <laughs> liking the um, the word. The sound of that word. I think it sounds better that way too. Anyway, effluent, the bad stuff in the water, essentially. How do you decide when there's too much of a chemical? What the polluters are supposed to do about it? How do we set those standards? The EPA seems to have, you know, spent years poring over that data, making sure that it believed in its own science, got this rule through and ready to go, and lo and behold, it's been just like utterly reversed by Pruitt and the people who wrote it. These career scientists feel like all of this. The, you know, essentially this enormously important task that they were given in order to protect public health has now been just like tossed out the window. And that's when you have the classic division between career folks and political appointees. And the way you evaluate that is like to go back to the Clean Air and Water Act and ask whether these rules are helpful or harmful. And then also what the cost benefit analysis for them is, because the EPA has to consider that in writing new rules. And then I think the third thing I'd say about Pruitt are these questions about transparency at the EPA and even the sort of, you know, investigating of employees and putting out of propaganda. So recently in a no-bid contract, the EPA chose this company called Definers Public Affairs to gather clips um, about what the EPA is doing. But at least one of the lawyers who works for Definers is also putting in a lot of FOIA requests for EPA employees who appear to be in any way critical of the Trump administration or of Scott Pruitt. And so you just have these questions about, you know, what is the role of government? Do we want government um, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on companies that seem to be trying to control the message of the government in a way that, you know, really censors or, you know, truly silences employees by making it feel like they're being watched. Well, I will say that that public affairs contract was a contract that the previous administration had, too, with a different agency. The FOIAing of the EPA officials, which the guy seemed to have been doing on his own time, is really freaky and disturbing if it is being passed on to the actual bosses in the EPA. But you know what? Foying of what public officials are doing is something that you can do. It's like a fundamental transparent right of of uh, citizens, and we should encourage it. And you should right. be and allowed to FOIA if, it. So, so, so if this guy is doing it as a private citizen. Right, although I will say, like, I found that to be, I mean, really? But I guess I, I would say, too, if you're writing, if you're a government employee writing things in your email that are going to get you in trouble at this point, that seems like you have had your warning. Though now, well, I'm not a government employee. I'm sure my email will yield some terrible secret, and then I'll be sorry I said that. 
I mean, isn't this the what's happening at the third category of agency that you talk about, David, is the larger question for the entire um, kind of the entire Trump presidency, which is a person was elected to do certain things. He's this Prude is an agent of the president's and he's doing it as efficiently and fa- quickly as possible. And that's what happens. Um, then. The, so then the so that's, you know, that's why elections matter. The question is whether the way in which he's doing it, and this is true of the president and the presidency, I mean, he's breaking norms, like the norm that you have to kind of scientifically study everything to build a case for it. And the reason you do that, even if you're going to reverse the previous uh, team's rules, is that you do that to create a more durable um, well, A, because, you know, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind means that you want to try and prove a case, the case that you're making, not just assert something, but actually prove it. Um, but the, the other benefit and reason you want to do that is it makes it more stable. It means that there's a body of evidence behind it that should make it hard to change the rule to something that's bad. But that's not really being done. Those standards and practices and norms. So are we in a completely different form of government now where we basically we and we've talked about the parliamentary system before but when we vote you know we vote people in and they basically affordable care act gets passed through reconciliation the tax cut gets passed through reconciliation that's about all that's done elections are are take place to basically just change the teams Uh, the teams come in and do as much as they can not through the system as it was designed which is through compromise but basically do as much as they can by gaming the system or operating in this way that um, changes regulations uh, as fast as possible and that's just the new way our government's going to work I mean, I think the the natural downside to not doing the intellectually rigorous scientific examination is that you then put a bunch of policies in place that create irrevocable damage. And the other op- uh, argument is you put a bunch of um, overly burdensome regulations in place that kill jobs and ruin the lives of people involved in various industries. Um, anyway, but it's yeah. the the consequences are way are, are out in the future. Well, but you also it depends how you think democracy functions too, right? I mean, yeah. one answer to Scott Pruitt in the EPA is like the Clean Water Act. And the Clean Air Act are written a long time ago. And yes, they were amended in the 90s, but they're not up to date. And so if people care a lot about making sure that pollutants stay out of this water and that the EPA is analyzing them in a way that protects public health, you have, you pressure for new legislation. And then the rulemaking authority of the agency is um, – is controlled by that new law. Now that's like a very well, idealized notion, but like but, that that's one response. But I think he he def, he says that and but some people say that's a dodge. So what he says is uh, all these things the EPA has done in the past in interpreting in interpreting these laws are beyond the boundaries of what the law actually gives it power to do. So we're not going to do all this stuff that people previously have interpreted that the EPA should do and we're going to wait for Congress to fix it and what people will say is well that's that's like what's being done on voting rights. Congress is never going to get around to doing this. So you're effectively removing these protections and you know they're never going to come back. And or if Congress doesn't actually do it, what they will end up doing because Congress is no longer a body that deals in compromise. It's a body that basically just does what the majority wants. You're referring it back to a system that's going to do what you want if it's in the control of your party. So you're still not doing the underlying wisest thing based on science, you're doing it based on uh, just political design I mean, or I, ideological design. I think the way that parliamentary the systems end up working is they have very strong bureaucracies that with highly professional leadership. 
And so that's how And there's they, a lot of deference to those people and there's deference and their to their to their role. expertise and their decision making role. And that is problematic in some ways and you end up with with bureaucratic overreach and bureaucracies that think they know better than the the politicians who've been elected to reflect the will of the people, but it also means that the expertise is is respected and that the changes aren't so swift so that people have they can be pretty certain that policies that are in place today will be in 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 more or less effect tomorrow and more or less effect the day after and so there's there's a more certainty and ability to plan and so the thing that worries me about somebody like a pruitt is not that he is implementing I mean, is it, is it, is it, I think, I, I guess that, that, that one of the greatest strengths that the American government has had is that we've had a highly expert, highly effective governing class. And the Republicans tend not to believe this, but we have bureaucracies that are not corrupt, that function, that are filled with very smart, uh, devoted public servants who, including tons of great scientists and great economists and accountants and lawyers. And when the, their uh, professional expertise is no longer respected or no longer valued in the same way. You lose them and you lose that expertise out of the system. So you bleed, you bleed out and lose the, the best, uh, the best IRS auditors and the best EPA scientists because they just don't want, they feel frustrated and they, their work is not being valued. And then the government just gradually becomes less respected and it's and the pop the public respects the, it less and the public has less trust in it and it's a vicious cycle so well, i do think you have to find a way i think it's fine for pruitt to, to carry forth the mission of the administration he well should do it but to find a way to do that while still valuing and respecting the intelligence and public public mindedness of the people who work in these agencies I want to quickly just go back to something you said, Emily, which is going back to the idea of why and how is a democracy supposed to function? Um, And there are supposed to be protections, even in a presidency that you elect by the will of the people who gets to do what he wants to do. The role, and maybe this is just a repeat of what David was saying, but the repeat that the legislature is there to represent the, the, the minority in some fashion, because part of the durability of any regulation or any durability of any law is that not just that it's been thought through and experts have been able to weigh in, but that the minority felt like they had a fair shot at, at affecting it and that their fair shot was maybe they didn't win the day, but they felt like the game was not rigged. If the game continually feels rigged, then people start going out in the streets. And the other point on democracy is if in the carrying out of the of the you know, um, ratified by the voters policies of a presidency, if in carrying them out, you are not being transparent or you are denying the right of a free press to have information on behalf of the people they they inform, then you're you're kicking out an additional pillar uh, from the democratic process. I get to start this segment because we are joined this morning by Linda Greenhouse, who is, as David said, a legendary journalist um, who covered the Supreme Court for almost 30 years for The New York Times, really kind of invented, I would say, or was one of the key people who invented modern Supreme Court coverage, won a Pulitzer Prize, is a colleague of mine here at Yale Law School, and is the author of a new book called Just a Journalist, which is the kind of book that you could certainly put in a stocking, or I always think of these books as like the ones that could be on the shelf at Urban Outfitters, um, because they're small and pocket-sized. And so Just a Journalist is about Linda's 
career and kind of how she started and came up through the ranks of Metro and covering the State House in Albany um, in New York before moving to the New York Times. And it's also a critique of journalism and what it's become. And so one of the things I was interested in talking about is this question of um, being fair and balanced. Sometimes we talk about it also in terms of equivalency or false equivalency. Um, And Linda, you write about how good um, interest groups and politicians can be at harnessing this value in journalism to their own ends and creating coverage that you don't really think is fair and balanced. Um, How do you frame those issues as you think about them? Yeah, this is something I've observed for a long time and I've been saying for a long time that these interest groups and these politicians understand journalism better than journalism understands itself. And by that, I mean the kind of norm that there have to be two sides to every story in order to meet the requirement, the quote requirement of being fair and balanced means that uh, there are outfits that basically exist to provide the other side of the story, even if objectively uh, there isn't much of another side or in a very complicated matter, there are many sides. And it's just very reductive to boil it down to two sides. And it's it's pervasive uh, in, in journalism. And I was hoping uh, in this book to kind of get a conversation started. I give a lot of examples of this problem in, in play. Uh, get a conversation started uh, that would cause people to be a little bit more reflective about this practice. Well, what are some of those examples? I'm curious. Well, for instance, there's... Um, There's an outfit in Sacramento, California called the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation. That sounds like a very big, impressive outfit. It's it's two guys, as far as I can tell. I've looked at their Form 990, the IRS form that every nonprofit has to file. And its mission statement is essentially boiled down to provide the other side of the story. And if you Google them, the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation, you will see that they are quoted dozens if not hundreds of times a year speaking up for the law and order side of any criminal justice story. And that's, you know, that's one example. When Guantanamo was a big story, there was a guy, a lawyer in Washington, perfectly estimable man. And my my criticism of these outfits is not of the outfits. They're doing the job that journalism desperately wants somebody to do. So David Rifkin, the man I'm talking about, would be the other side of anything that happened in the news that was adverse to the George W. Bush administration with respect to Guantanamo. Anything, even a Hollywood movie, Taxi to the Dark Side, that cast a very dim eye on uh, what was going on in Iraq, a story about it ends up quoting David Rifkin saying, well, you know, really things aren't so bad. Why this belongs in a story about the movie, I have no idea. Uh, So I had started the practice of when I knew the reporter who wrote these various stories, calling or emailing that person, say, I'm just curious, you know, how did David Rifkin end up in your story? Did you call him? Did he reach out to you? And often, uh, either he would would insert himself or uh, feeling the need for the other side of the story, uh, you know, they would just go to the Rolodex or the electronic Rolodex these days and... um, And he was the name who popped up, and so he was the name who popped up again. When you started covering the Supreme Court, 
some of the major issues of the day, obviously, were starting to unfold um, involving reproductive rights, involving um, free speech. Do you feel like the standards for how we cover these um, hotly contested issues, which are legal in nature if they're a dispute before the court, but they're also inevitably political, do you think that it's changed over time? Have the controversies that we often see about um, the coverage uh simmered down as people have gotten more acclimated to thinking about these questions of politics and law? Or are we kind of stuck always when we cover the courts with um, wanting uh, issues to be more purely legal than they really are? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think uh, one thing that is needed in coverage of the courts is to situate every case in the context in which it arises. And if it's a highly politicized context, uh, there's a current example, for instance. Uh, there's a case that's going to be argued uh, shortly <clears throat> in the current Supreme Court term, a case called Janus, J-A-N-U-S. And it's a First Amendment uh, attack on current labor law uh, that allows unions to uh, exact the equivalent of dues from people who they have to represent in the bargaining unit but who've chosen not to join the union. Uh, this is a longstanding uh, policy. It's been upheld decades ago by the Supreme Court against a First Amendment challenge, and yet it's back on the court. It's impossible to accurately cover this case, this issue, without pointing out to readers that this is an issue that one Supreme Court justice, Justice Sam Alito, has uh, basically begged people to bring to the court, bring me a case. He almost had it two years ago. It would have been a five to four decision um, in favor of the union objectors. But in between the argument and Justice Alito crafting the majority opinion, Justice Scalia died. And that left the court in a four to four tie and they, they couldn't do it. Now they have Justice Gorsuch and surely they will get what they want. And as I say, it's impossible to understand this without putting it in political context. And I, I hope when I read the coverage of, of this issue, uh, when it's argued and eventually later in the spring of 2018 when it's decided that I will, uh, I will see that kind of context because without it, you simply cannot understand what's occurred. What about confirmation hearings? I feel like in the time I have been paying attention to confirmation hearings, they have become so wooden and kabuki-like and frozen that I'm ready to dispense of them. Was there a time when they were more illuminating, um, a kind of better golden age of the Supreme Court confirmation hearing? Well, of course, confirmation hearings have always been very problematic. I mean, I asked my students to read part of the transcript of Thurgood Marshall's confirmation hearing uh, back in the 60s. And it's just shocking how the, uh, the old Southern Democrats who kind of ran the Senate in those days uh, set out to humiliate him, uh, you know, this great icon of the civil rights movement, asking him the most picayune questions about uh, constitutional history and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm not sure there ever was a golden age. What what happened? It, what, and how, what was the result of that? He got confirmed. They got him. Well, it was clearly done to belittle him, right? I mean, there must have been some. Of course, there was no. There wasn't television coverage of confirmation right. hearings in those days. So it was, it was kind of inside baseball. They were just getting kind of getting their licks in. Uh, the first televised Supreme Court confirmation hearing was Sandra O'Connor, and uh, and. They, they gave her a hard time, interestingly, from the right, 
because there were some very right-wing Reagan Revolution senators who didn't trust her on abortion. And as it turned out, you know. They were right. They were right. Uh, she was very cool and she was very good. You know, she was had, had experience in electoral politics. She knew how to handle herself. Uh, so that was a great uh, success for for her. Um, but Emily, in answer to your question about do they serve any utility, uh, I mean, certainly the Gorsuch hearing did not. I, I wrote a column uh, some months back in which I said that I got more interesting answers from uh, Siri on my phone than, I, than the Senate got from uh, Neil Gorsuch in his confirmation hearing. On the other hand, uh, you know, just last week, uh, for a lower court, for federal district court, uh, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana asked questions of uh, a Trump nominee that, uh, you know, any first or maybe certainly second-year law student would have been able to answer, and this nominee um, could not, and the nomination failed. Had Senator Kennedy not asked those questions, had Senator Whitehouse not put the video up on Twitter and tweeted it out to the world and went viral, um, you know, that guy would be sitting on the federal district court today. So, it's, you know, you, you can't say they serve no purpose, but it's, it's up to the senators uh, to, to make them work. That was Matthew Peterson. Matthew Peterson. That's I correct. confess to have some sympathy for Mr. Peterson about Younger and Pullman abstention, which I also did not remember from law school, but I guess I'm not um, a nominee for the federal bench. Well, I mean, any federal district judge would have to know, would, yes. would have to understand that. Fair enough. Linda, what did you make of um, uh, Mitch McConnell's, he was interviewed right after the tax cut passed and said, you know, the tax cut's nice and all, but uh, he felt like the the crowning achievement of his career so far had been Neil Gorsuch and the changes that he's making to the to the circuit courts or that Republicans have made to the circuit courts. And yesterday in the ceremony at the White House, he mentioned that again, talking about setting a center right direction for the Supreme Court for the next generation. Is that um, saying center right? That's funny. Is that well, they always say, say that? Is that saying out loud what has been the nature of things, and that's all that's um, new about that? Or just how do you how did you read that uh, those two statements? He's been saying that, and uh, I think a number of um, shall we say more thoughtful Republicans who have great concerns about the Trump administration. I've heard some of these individuals say, yeah, it's really grim. It's really bad. The world's in a terrible shot. But at least we got Gorsuch. And so I think he's simply, McConnell is a, you know, channeling a feeling on sort of the intellectual right uh, that has very little use for Donald Trump except for this. Uh, and secondly, you know, he was the architect of uh, the blockade of of the Scalia seat, the blockade of the Merrick Garland nomination. There's, you know, some evidence that that really did play a role in the outcome of the election, where some number of Trump voters, and there didn't have to be very many of them, given how close the election was, thought, you know, I'm, I'm maybe I don't like Donald Trump, but I'm voting for the future of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Right. And so without the Gorsuch, without the Garland-Gorsuch, well, without Garland, uh, Trump doesn't get elected, tax cut doesn't pass. So it's not just the gateway to uh, to Gorsuch, it's also the gateway by the theory you just outlined, which definitely people have uh, have mentioned. Um, it's the gateway to the achievements, any achievement so that takes place under— that, that, that Democrats were 
joyful, not about his death, but as an opportunity, turned out to be the yeah the main yeah. punishment, I the mean, main the, means by which they lost the, the election. number of people who were nervous about President Trump, but said exactly, or candidate Trump, but said exactly what Linda just said, which is, uh, you know, but I care about the Supreme Court. Uh, there were a lot of people who said that to me during the campaign of all different stripes and in all different places. And, John, I, I don't know about you, but I hear those concerns much more from conservatives than from liberals. I think that putting the Supreme Court foremost and realizing that those life tenure appointments in the lower courts are incredibly significant is something that the right has just figured out and holds dear in a way that the left um, does not put as much stock I, in. I, I think. Oh, that- yeah. I mean, wh- one example, if I could say, is uh, – Compare the first year of the Obama administration to the first year of the Trump administration. So Donald Trump, with control of the Senate, has succeeded in getting 12, count them, 12 uh, Court of Appeals nominees confirmed. That is the biggest number of any president in the first year in the history of the presidency and of the Courts of Appeals. You know, the, the left was going nuts early in the Obama administration when Democrats controlled the Senate, at the administration's um, kind of lassitude, diffidence about putting forward not only, you know, liberal names, but any names uh, to the lower courts. Uh, of course, they, you know, they got sacked with two Supreme Court vacancies uh, pretty much within the first year, um, you know, first the retirement of Justice Souter in 2009 and then the retirement of Justice Stevens in uh, 2010. Uh, so they had a lot on their plate, but they didn't take the opportunities that they might have, which reflects what Emily said. It's uh, it's conservatives who really are playing a long game with the courts and really uh, have never taken their eye off the ball. So, Linda, you were saying that you were hoping to start a conversation with this book about some of the um, rules or standards of journalism. What going forward in terms of covering the Trump administration do you think is crucial for journalists to keep in mind? One thing I do in this book is chronicle the evolution of the journalism about Donald Trump from the beginning of the election cycle uh, through the early days after inauguration, which is when my manuscript was was, uh, due to the publisher. And the difference, of course, is is really striking. Uh, There was the moment in September of 2016 when the New York Times in 36-point type on page one, uh, you know, called the candidate of a major political party a liar. Uh, You know, that certainly would not have happened uh, even some months earlier. And the question I end the book with is, uh, will this kind of... um, aggressive identification of untruths in the political context, in the media, um, in the mainstream media, uh, will this survive the Trump administration or is it kind of Trump-specific? Has the DNA changed? Or when Trump leaves the scene, will things revert back to he said, she said, and even if the reporter has reason to think that what the politician said was not true, uh, it's enough to quote somebody else raising questions about it instead of putting the weight and the authority of the actual media outlet behind identifying uh, the untruth. And that's a, a question we, we can't answer now, but I think it's a, it's a challenge to journalism going forward.
the book is called Just a Journalist. It's really a gem, um, just a lovely read, takes you along Linda's career. It's also a nice tonic right now in this Me Too moment of thinking about women's careers and how one can succeed and what it takes to both keep going, but also hold on to one's own values along the way. Listeners, if you do check out and enjoy Linda's book, leave a review on Amazon. That is always a kindness you can do an author if you enjoy their work. Um, Those reviews influence what people buy, and especially with new books, um, they're really important. Thank you, Emily. And let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having your cocktail, I just learned an amazing fact about cocktails, John. You will love this fact. Do you know what a loggerhead is? No, not in oh, the cocktail context. So the term at loggerhead know, comes from the term loggerhead. Right. A loggerhead is a metal bar that was heated to red hot temperatures attached to a, a wooden handle that you would dip into a drink that was held in a ceramic or, or metal pewter mug to heat up that drink. Huh? But why are we at loggerheads? We're not at loggerheads. I just learned what a loggerhead is. Oh, but then when, but how does that then become the idiom? I need to do more research. All on right. That. Okay. Well, good. That's our next. Uh, anyway, that's um. What, so, what's your loggerhead? Fascinating. Chatter? Uh, my chatter is not is not as good as that one, but um, but it's uh, about a new. Uh, it's about a book that's coming out. Um, actually, comes out in January. But I just interviewed um, Daniel Pink about his new book. I loved all of his previous books. Um, and uh, his new book, um, his previous books like Drive and. To sell as human, um, his new latest book is called "When the Science: uh, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing," um, and it is has two things. One, it has all those revelations about the cool disconnect between the fact that we had to organize time, you know, in increments so that we could know when the bus was coming, but the way it's out of phase with the way the human body actually works in both, and and so it maps both the human, you know. The, the way in which we are perform better in a certain way during the day, kind of slump during the afternoon, and then perform better in a way in the evening. This is something that it took me forever to learn about my own writing, that I can work for four hours in the afternoon and never be as productive as a, as a half an hour after coffee in the morning. And then this weird thing happens to me, which is then later at night, suddenly I get productive again. And I've never... I just thought, oh, well, that's my own, like, idiosyncrasy. But no, it turns out it's, like, totally – go ahead. Does it have anything – I'm sick right now, and one of the amazing things about being sick is there is this moment late in the in – the, Yes, where you get evening, worse. Where you get worse. Yeah, your What's temperature up goes up. I, uh, I don't know. I don't remember that from the book, but, yeah, that's right. Your temperature goes up later in the day. I can't remember why that is. I used to know that because of – with kids, it would always bum me out because you'd be like, oh, they're getting better. And then – the temperature would spike again, and there was always a warning with kids that if they get us, like if they seem to get better and then get sick again, it can mask some other horrible uh, illness that's underlying it. Anyway, but he also writes about the the rhythms of teams and groups, and you would love this, David. It turns out that choral singing has this um, super beneficial effect with um, syncing groups, and anyway, it's got all this great news you can use about. Um, about how to basically measure, arrange your own time to be most efficient in terms of the different kinds of tasks you use. So like later in the day, you are better than you are in the afternoon, but for a certain kind of thinking, as opposed to in the morning when you're sort of in this mode of alert type thinking. Anyway, I really enjoyed it. And um, and we actually, I actually, I interviewed him for Face the Nation, which will be on this Sunday, the 24th. I didn't, uh, 
that was an, that was a, another log rolling. But um, anyway, I encourage you to get the uh, to read the book. Emily, what's your chatter? I um, had a good time this week answering the call of the Fair Punishment Project at Harvard, which asked me and Pamela Koloff, um, an amazing writer at ProPublica in the New York Times Magazine, they asked us to put together a list of our favorite criminal justice stories for 2017. And we did this really unscientifically. It's totally subjective. We concentrated on narrative nonfiction and basically like went back to the stories that we loved the most this year. And so um, we picked six stories and people can go check them out. But I wanted to call out one of them in particular, a story by Alice Gregory in The New Yorker called The Sorrow and the Shame of the Accidental Killer. It's about people who inadvertently take the life of another person, like in a car accident. And as Pam says in her write-off, it's just this elegiac meditation on the burden that these people carry. Uh, and I found it incredibly moving when I read it and rereading it for this list. Um, enjoyed rediscovering it. So I recommend that. And while I'm on the topic of reading about criminal justice, I also want to recommend a book by Peter Edelman called Not a Crime to be Poor, which is about bail and fines and fees and all the ways in which the criminal justice system essentially just punishes people for their poverty. It's just an excellent assessment and analysis of this part of criminal law, which has been coming up again and again for me in my book research. So Not a Crime to be Poor by Peter Edelman. And that's Peter Edelman, the former Clinton administration official who resigned uh, over welfare reform. Exactly. Jonah Jonah Edelman's father. Uh, Yes, and Ezra Edelman's father. And Ezra Edelman's father. And (laughs) And Josh Josh Edelman's father father as well. And Marion Wright Edelman's husband. The Edelman boys. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah, and so I think that the concerns Peter's had throughout his career about how we unfairly treat and punish poor people are very evident in this book. All right. So, John, I discovered why loggerheads – well, loggerhead were so ubiquitous in England that British people start to use the term as an insult – suggesting that your person you're insulting has a piece of iron for a head. and then Like calling somebody a blockhead, which is yeah. why you used to put wigs on. Yeah. yeah nice. And then at loggerhead somehow implied disagreement. Well, I guess it could um, be two blockheads. You know, it's a, it's a yeah. disagreement between, between two, two stupid people stupid or people. people obtuse people. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so my chatter is a remarkable essay that I strongly strongly urge you to read that um, by Umer Haq. I saw it referred to in my source of universal goodness, the Jason Kotke's blog. It, it appears in medium. It appears in some sub brand of medium, which I didn't call. I can't remember the name of it, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it. The essay is called, what do you call a world that can't learn from itself? Why don't Americans understand how poor their lives are? And it is a remarkable piece about the differences between Europe and the United States and how shocking and increasingly shocking they are. And in particular, the subject of just just sort of the general pleasantness of the European life and what it is when you have a secure, when you have security around your health and your education and your child care. You have public works that work and aren't falling apart. That's a, That's a point that's been made many times before, but he takes it to this question about why it is that Americans are no longer open to adopting ideas from elsewhere. We've become hung up on American exceptionalism. We almost don't recognize this anymore, that we've become a much more impoverished society than we are willing to see because we always look at things through the lens of the, the idea that America, America's greatness. 
it's a really brilliant essay that it's quite short. It's, you know, only 1500 words. I've gotten into about six or seven arguments in just the past couple of days about it. And even if you don't agree with it, or you think it is, it's missing something fundamental about how we live or missing something some fundamental about what Europe is like, it will get you thinking. It also makes the point that Europe, that Europe is adopting some of our bad habits, even as we're refusing to see their good qualities. As a corollary to that, there's a fantastic Twitter thread that a woman named Alison Gerber, A-L-I-S-O-N-G-E-R-B-E-R, has on Twitter about what it's like to be in Sweden, to have children in Sweden, to have a health problem in Sweden, to uh, go to work in Sweden. And it's a contrast to, in the shadow of the tax bill, it's a kind of contrast between middle-class life in each of these countries. And it's uh, it's also very sobering. Anyway, Umer Hawk, U-M-A-I. R is the first name, Hawk, H-A-Q-U-E. What do you call a world that can't learn from itself? And it was in Medium. And then uh, Alison Gerber is the, the Twitter thread about living in Sweden. That is our show for today. The Gab Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Izzy Road is our researcher. You should look us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash gabfest. There's lots of Facebook goings on with the GabFest. You can follow us there, like us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. Remember, next week is our conundrum show. So tune in next week for some special treats with us and with They Might Be Giants. And uh, we will see you next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.